this women's group that just started up, Titus Women's Group, the next meeting is going to be on December 3rd. December 3rd, starting at 6.30 p.m. They're going to be going over a few different topics. Uh, 6.30 is you're going to be doing sewing basics. 7 o'clock will be budgeting, and 7.30 will be a, a spiritual woman topic there. You are able to come to any of them, all of them, whatever works there. We'll get this information on the bulletin and also on the website. That's going to be December 3rd, 6.30 p.m., 6.30 sewing, 7 o'clock budgeting, 7.30 spiritual woman's topic. Uh, number two, Marv came up to me and said, you guys are screwing up back there. When it comes to the directory, if you don't do it right, he will come up and announce the whole thing again. Same jokes, same everything. So I've already heard the same jokes at the 830 service. Um, So don't make him do it again, please. Please, for my sake. You're not supposed to write on the actual um, papers. You're supposed to fill out a card. So if there's something you need to switch, fill out a card and take care of it on the card. Please don't actually write on the sheets itself, so on the card. Is that correct, Marv? What? Paper stay. So make sure you write it on the card, not on the papers, because the papers are staying, but the cards are going. So there you go. All right, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Continuing our study here through the book of Acts. Last week was introduced to the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit when it comes to the church. Today we're going to be talking about the purpose of the church. And next week when we get into Acts chapter 2, we'll be talking about the people of the church. So we were introduced to the power of the Holy Spirit. Today it's going to be the purpose of the church. And next week will be the people of the church. So if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to get that as we started our introduction here into the book of Acts. And we laid the groundwork of who the Holy Spirit is and His primary role here in the book of Acts. Very, very important. With that being said, now let's talk about the purpose of the church. Why do we get together? If you look here in Acts 1.8, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that is now the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church in verse 8 is to be witnesses. That's why we're here. We are here through the power of the Holy Spirit, and our purpose now is to tell other people about Jesus Christ. It's pretty simple. I think sometimes we complicate the issue. We're supposed to be witnesses. I remember years ago, there was an individual that had quite a business background, and he was really into mission statements, vision statements, etc. And he said, you as a church, you need to have a mission statement, you need to have a vision statement. And I said, oh, we're kind of laid back when it comes to that type of stuff. He goes, no, you need to have it so people know what the mission and the vision is of the church. And so he came up with examples. He printed off ones, and they were really well done. Um, they were eloquent, they were well-written, they were very flowing. That was nice, and I, and I appreciate those nice vision statements. If you look on your bulletin, we came up with this. Our mission, to see people saved and go deeper in Jesus. That's about the best we could do. <laughs> we're not very eloquent, we're not really wordy, we're not really flowing. That's what we want. If you're here today and you're not saved, we want to proclaim to you the truth of who Jesus Christ is. If you're here today and you are saved, we want you to walk out of this building, hopefully with a deeper, stronger walk with Christ, so that you may go be stronger as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife. I don't know. You could go be a light and a witness. If you're saved, we want you to go deeper in the Lord. If you're not saved, we want you to know about Jesus. That's the purpose of the church. And when you look at it, that's what we're here to do. And that's exactly what Jesus told us to do in verse 8. Go be witnesses. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Where are we supposed to be witnesses? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
Now, I don't think he literally means Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. When he was speaking to the disciples at that time, they would understand those different geographical locations. The way we look at it, the way we take it is this. Your Jerusalem is your close area. They were in Jerusalem, so that would have been the area they know. What is your Jerusalem? Your home? Your neighborhood? Maybe you have unsaved loved ones in your house? That's your Jerusalem. Maybe you have unsaved neighbors? That's your Jerusalem. Some of you spend 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week with co-workers. That's your Jerusalem. You are supposed to be impacting those people closest to you. Next one, Judea. This is a little bit farther away. Maybe this is something where you're called to go do a service, go do a ministry. You know, as a church, we've gone and done Bible studies in different places. We've gone and done VBSs in different places. We've sent people to go do some service ministries. Maybe this is stepping out of your Jerusalem and now going to a little bit farther area, your Judea. Now, we'll skip Samaria and come back to that. Now, to the uttermost parts of the earth, the end of the earth. Most of us aren't called to overseas missions. But we can support those that are called to overseas missions. You know, one of the things I love about Harvest and love for years is the supporting of, like, Gospel for Asia, for example, or Operation Christmas Child. I encourage you, as you come into the foyer, there is a bulletin board to your left there that has all the different ministries and missionaries we support. Some of them are literally all over the earth. We may not be called to physically go do it, but we can support them financially. We can support them in prayer and see the Gospel message go throughout the world. Now, it seems like when most people get saved, first thing they want to do is go be a missionary in some far-off country. There's a lot of missionary work to be done in your Jerusalem. There's a lot of missionary work to be done in your Judea. There really is. In fact, if you look in the Bible, there's a great story of there was a man that was demon-possessed, and after the demon was cast out, he begged Jesus, let me go with you. Jesus basically said, no, stay here. Minister to your people here. They saw what you were like. Now let them see what I've done in your life. Your Jerusalem is powerful. Your witness in Jerusalem is powerful. Your witness in Judea is powerful. If you're called to the ends of the earth, amen. Some of you may just be called to prayerfully, financially support those that are called to the ends of the earth. We're supposed to be witnesses over the world. Now, what about Samaria? Now, you've got to remember Samaria. Samaria was hated. Hated during Bible times. A little bit of background. Back in 722 B.C., the northern tribes of Israel were defeated by a nation called Assyria. And what happened was the Assyrians intermingled with them. So what happened is they became a mixed race. So the Jews no longer liked them because they were part Jewish and part Assyrians. The Assyrians didn't like them because they were part Jewish, part Assyrians. So they became this ostracized group and they weren't liked. So what happened over time is they created their own capital, they created their own religion, and the Jews despised them, this mixed race group of people. Hated them. So that's why it's so fascinating when Jesus in the New Testament always pointed out the Samaritans, the story of the good Samaritan. He's the good guy. Back during Jesus' time when he taught that, who would have ever thought the Samaritan would be the good guy? He was. When Jesus went to the woman at the well, where was it? Samaria. He purposely went there to say, God loves these people too. Now, so we know what your Jerusalem is, we know what your Judea is, and we know what your earth is. What's your Samaria? Samaria is the guy you don't want to talk to at work. Samaria is the place where you say, Lord, I'll go anywhere but there. Samaria is the place you don't like. And you, and you justify it. Well, they've had their chance. They've made their choices. This is the life they've chosen to live. Let it go. 
You guys all have a Samaria at work. You probably do. You may have Samarias in this church. You may actually have a geographical Samaria where you say, Lord, I'll go anywhere but there. Guess what the Lord's going to do? He's got a sense of humor. He's going to send you there. I was just talking to someone on the phone this week, and this is the idea we came up with. We're going to try reverse psychology on God. (laughs) Tell God you want to go to that Samaria. Try to fool him. Doesn't work, though. You're going to have an area that you just don't like. It's a fact. Guess what's going to happen? This is what I've learned in 20 years of being a Christian. I've had Samaritans in my life, people I struggled with. And I've had a breakthrough where I said, okay, Lord, I love them. I love them like you love them. Guess what God does? He reveals another Samaritan in my life. See, once you work through the first Samaritan, once you work through your first Samaria location, and you learn to love them like Jesus loves them, guess what he's going to do? He's going to reveal the next one on your list. We're humans. We won't always see eye to eye. We'll struggle with certain people. And Jesus says, I want you to go to them. Too often we say, Lord, anybody but them. We've joked out here before, I want to be a missionary, but only to the upper middle class. Doesn't work that way. You have a Jerusalem, you have a Judea, you have the other most parts of the earth, but you also have a Samaria. Quit fighting it, accept it, and learn to love them in that location like Jesus loves them in that location. Only way we can do that is through what? Verse 8, the power of the Holy Spirit. That was last week. Power of the Holy Spirit. This week, purpose of the church. So now what do we do with this? How do we incorporate this? We did verses 9 through 11 last week. Verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. When they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So how did they fulfill their purpose? How did they receive their power? Verse 14, prayer. My goodness, prayer. So simple, but yet so complicated. We want to be a church of prayer. I love it that there's a guys and gals group that meets Wednesday night for prayer. I love it that there's a Monday's study gals that are great prayer warriors. I love it that Saturday morning the guys get together and pray as well. So there's days of prayer there. I love it that if you have a prayer request, you can, you can write it down back there and people will pray over it this week. I love it that if you have a prayer request, it will go across the prayer line and people will pray over it. We're not just going to say we pray. We really want to do it. I had a verse that was heavy on my heart recently and I contacted a gal. I know she's a prayer warrior. And I said, would you please pray this verse for the church? I know she will. I love it. I love it that it's supposed to be a church of prayer. Not just saying it, but really mean it. That's one of the things I love. If I come up to one of you out here and I say, hey, would you please pray for this? I know you're going to do it. And I appreciate that. That's one of the things you see in the early church as they were church of prayer. How did they do this? Verse 14, they all continued with one accord. Now, some of your Bibles may say constantly in prayer or continued in prayer. I'm going to be honest with you. I see this as ministries start out, and let's say they start out small, maybe numerically, and as they grow, you start to see prayer being pushed off to the side. As you see that in in sometimes your own life, I can tell you right now as a a Christian, when I first got saved, prayed about everything. Then I reached a point of wisdom and maturity where I no longer needed to give everything over to the Lord. Boy, how arrogant of that. You see the church throughout the book of Acts praying, praying, and praying some more. It's a continual theme. 
And I cannot encourage you enough. Pray. Pray for the ministries that you support. Pray for those people that need to know Christ. Pray. And how do we do this? Verse 14, we do it in one accord. This one accord is a fascinating Greek word. It's actually a compound word. And it means two things that almost sound complete opposite. The first part of that word means to rush along with a fury and intensity. Think about that. Rushing along with a fury and intensity. Almost uncontrolled. Rushing, just full steam ahead. The second part of that word means in unison together. That's the church. Rushing along with a fury and intensity, but in unison together. Because we realize time is short. We realize we have some amazing news of the gospel that we need to get out. So there is an intensity, a fury about this. Let's get this information out, but yet let's do it together. One accord. The Holy Spirit takes many into one. We're one purpose, one mind, and one focus. And what it is, it's a unity of a group and a similar action. Prayer. Do you realize how important it is to have that unity when you're trying to do something with a fury and intensity and a rushing along? You've got to be unified. You've got to be unified. Yesterday, we have the men's prayer time Bible study out here that Rich does. And the boys love coming out. Whatever's going on at church, they said, can we come? So Saturday morning, the three older boys wanted to come out for the Bible study. I said, okay, well, I'm doing the Bible study. You guys can go play in the church. When I get done, i got to work out here for a few hours. You guys can play. And they said, that's fine. So we got done with the study, and I went back to check in on the boys. And what happens is we have this big box out here at church. Tony, who takes care of the children's ministry, she made this house out of this cardboard box, and it's big, it's huge, the boys love it. She puts some windows in and a door. Well, she was done with this, so she put it in my office and said the boys can play with it. So this is what we do when we're out here, is I took the box into the fellowship hall, and I told Kenan, my third one, this weighs nothing. I said, get in the box. So he got in the box, and I pushed him around the fellowship hall as fast as I possibly could. I mean, we were moving. We were booking. And when I say fast, I was pretty impressed. It was moving. There was a fury. There was an intensity in doing this. Well, Kenan, halfway through our trip, decided he wanted to look out the window of the box. I saw Kenan wanting to look out the window, and I realized that's not going to go good. So I took my fury and intensity, and I stopped it. Kenan went straight out the front, face, face planted right on the fellowship hall. If you go look at him today... It's a big red spot, black and blue. I mean, he hit hard. We had fury. We had intensity. We rushed along. We were not in unison. Have you ever been in a church that has a fury and intensity, but there's no unison? I've been in churches that are unified, but there's no fury and intensity. You've got to have both. And, and that is what makes the book of Acts unique. It tells us, it shows us how to do this. And guess what happens when you have a fury and intensity? People argue. People bicker. People see it from different points of view. That's why we need to do it as one accord. Do you realize how difficult it is to be one out here? How difficult? There's going to be hundreds of people that walk through these doors, and we're all supposed to agree on the same thing. We're all going to agree on what volume level worship should be. We're all going to agree on what song should be done in worship. We're all going to agree on what book of the Bible to go through. It ain't going to happen. I know for me, anytime we start a new book of the Bible, if I choose Old Testament, I hear groans. Old Testament. I hate the Old Testament. Well, I'm sorry you're not saved. So, 
If I choose New Testament, I have people that say, can't we get into the Old Testament? There's so much good in there. You can't win. One accord, unison together. And it's not just in prayer. In fact, this word, this phrase, one accord, is used 12 times in the Bible, 11 times in the book of Acts. And it's not just about prayer. If you're taking notes, just write this down. First one was prayer, but the Bible also says they were one accord and fellowship. One accord and fellowship. Now, fellowship, and Jonathan made a mention of this a little bit earlier, fellowship is a little bit of a dirty word for some people. Because I'm not here about getting together with people. I'm just here to see the gospel spread. Amen. But fellowship is part of that process. It encourages, it uplifts, it's supposed to be there. I know people that have no interest in fellowship. That's their choice. But fellowship is supposed to be a time of encouragement, coming together and saying, hey, I'm struggling, will you pray for me? Or, hey, this is how I do it, maybe that would encourage you. So fellowship is key. And the Bible says in the book of Acts, they were one accord and fellowship. Now, if your sole focus is fellowship... You're going to miss out on the rest. There has to be a balance there, but fellowship is important. Next thing you see them being one accord in the book of Acts, they were one accord in teaching. In teaching. Now, there's going to be different people that teach out here. Obviously, I teach out here. Sometimes Rich fills in. Sometimes Jonathan fills in, etc. And guess what? All of our styles are different. But yet there is one accord on the focus on the Word of God. And that is what's very important, is focusing on the Word of God. We're not saying we got it all figured out. I don't mean in that way, any way whatsoever. But I know when I first started coming out here 20 years ago and Pastor Jim was teaching, I have never heard the Bible taught verse by verse before. And that just completely blew my mind. And that's something that we've continued doing. We're going to be one accord and focusing on the Word of God. Teaching styles may be different, and that's good. But we're going to be one accord in that. What's the fourth one you see them being one accord in? This is the tough one. Decisions. The Bible says they were one accord and their decision-making process. Boy, that's tough. That's tough. One accord in prayer, okay, I can see that. One accord in fellowship, that's a little tougher. One accord on teaching, yeah, we can do that. One accord on decisions, oh boy, that's tough. Everybody has a different opinion. I think the four most dangerous words in the English language are, well, I just think, it's tough. It's, it's, it's really tough. I've been in meetings and I've had discussions with godly people before where we both can quote verses that back up exactly what we're saying. What's the one accord? What's the Lord want in this? That's part of it, is being that one. We just mentioned this last week, sometimes the difficulty of this. Write this down as 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. Paul writes, we're one body, but we have different gifts, we have different ministries, and we have different activities. I am thankful that we as a body of Christ do not all have the same gift. You need different gifts to make the body of Christ work. Here's the problem, though. The gift that you have, and it's not being cocky or prideful. Generally speaking, the gift that you have, you feel that's probably the most important gift to the body of Christ. So you expect everybody to have the same passion and intensity as your gift. I love teaching. This is, this is what I look forward to all week. So I want everybody to have the same passion for being in God's Word and marking and underlining and looking at the Hebrew and Greek of words. If your passion is the gift of ministry, you expect everybody to have that same gift. So when there's a church cleaning day, well, why doesn't everybody show up? If there's a Bible study, well, why doesn't everybody show up? Not everybody has the same gift. Yes, they're all important, but not everybody has the same gift. Same thing with ministry. Your ministry, you may feel that that area of church that you're in is the most important thing. 
That's a blessing, and that ministry is vital. But not everybody sees the same value in that ministry. It doesn't make it wrong, because all the ministries are important. All of them. You may be in a different season of life. You may be going through something different. Same thing with activities. There's activities out here, and I don't mean this negatively, I don't get anything out of. Because that activity is not focused on me. It blesses me because I see the church being blessed, but it may not bless me personally. There's activities that I get something out of, but maybe it doesn't for you. As it says in Corinthians, one body, one God, but different gifts, different ministries, different activities. And we have to remember that we're supposed to take all these gifts, ministries, and activities, combine them together through the power of the Holy Spirit, and be in one accord. And that's what you see here through the book of Acts. You see the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. Sometimes they're all in one accord, and it's powerful. When you get a church all with the same vision, that's powerful. But what else do you see? You see arguments in the book of Acts. You see sin creeping in. It's an honest book. See, here's the thing. If we're using all of our energy fighting each other, how do we have any energy left to spread the gospel of Christ? I mean, how can we? How can we do that? We need to make sure that we're one in purpose, mind, and focus. We're not all going to agree on things. And throughout the book of Acts, they're not all going to agree on it. But we need to make sure the preeminent importance is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the purpose of the church. And next week, we'll get into Acts 2. And that is what blesses the people. That's what's important. So, what happens here now? It kind of changes gears a little bit. Verse 15, it says, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so the field is called in their own language, a cow that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. What they're talking about here is Judas, and Judas falling and stumbling away, and Judas's death. And what they're saying now is that was a prophecy that was going to happen. And now the second part of that prophecy, verse 20, is someone else needs to take his place. So now we need to decide who's going to take the place of Judas, verse 21. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must be become a witness with us of his resurrection. Basically, they're saying is we got these guys... And they've been with us since the beginning. So we've been, they've been proven. We know their hearts. We know their belief system. They've been with us for the next last few years. Let's see who the Lord has in store. Verse 23, and they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell in Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So they had two guys that were going to kind of pray about. And you see that in verse 23. You have Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also surnamed Justice. And then you had Matthias. And the Lord, they prayed. And who did the Lord reveal in verse 23? Matthias was the one to take the place. Now the question comes up, what did Matthias have that uh, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, didn't have? 
My personal opinion, take it or leave it, and I'm not saying this is biblical or not, I don't think they chose the first guy because no one wanted to say that name all the time. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also surnamed Justice. It's a lot easier to say, hey, Matthias, come with us, you know? There was something there that the Lord said. Now, does this mean the first guy was wrong and the second guy was better? Of course not. Of course not. See, this is what happens. We look at this and we say, ooh, Matthias. He obviously was more spiritual. He was deeper. He was stronger. Maybe Matthias was a rotten egg, and God says, I'm bringing him closer to work with him. See, so often we look at things, and if someone doesn't have the title or the power or the prestige, obviously they're not right with the Lord. Oh, come on. It doesn't matter. What matters is the Lord said, there's something in Matthias that I'm going to use. We don't know what it was, and it doesn't matter, but that's who the Lord chose. And we got to be careful when it comes to looking at situations. We have a tendency sometimes to make decisions based on what we see, what we think, what we feel. That's a dangerous spot to be in. Go, if you will, with me to 1 Samuel 16. we got two points, and then we're done. 1 Samuel 16, please. 1 Samuel 16 is a story over David's anointed king, and many of you probably know where I'm going with this passage. It's an important reminder for us not to look at what we see, but to look and see what the Lord sees. I read a great men's devotional a few years ago they were doing out here, and there was this phrase that came up, and I've never forgot it. It's called Bubbling Brook versus uh, silent rivers run deep. And what it basically says is this. Bubbling brooks, they're beautiful, they're picturesque, they sound great, they're wonderful. Who doesn't like walking beside a bubbling brook? problem is a bubbling brook has no depth, it has no volume. Now you go to a river, huge bodies of water, be it the Mississippi, what have you, they actually can be quieter than a bubbling brook, even though the amount of water is not even comparable. And the guy made the point that sometimes that's the way it is spiritually. You see bubbling brooks. They're always talking about the Lord and God this and God that and verses and scriptures and what the Lord's doing, but they have no depth, no volume in their walk in relationship with the Lord. So when tough times come, they just fall apart. They deflate. They're a bubbling brook. And I've seen bubbling brooks before. They are wonderful to be around. But when tough times hit, I don't mean to be judgmental. They make some of the dumbest decisions I've ever seen. There's no depth, no volume, no nothing. And then you run into these other guys, silent rivers run deep, and you wonder if they're even alive. But their walk with the Lord is deep, it's strong, and when the going gets tough, you know they are there. And I'm not saying it has to be one or the other, because I've seen a combination of both. But so often we run into these bubbling brooks, and we must assume that they're fine spiritually. Why? Because they sure sound good. Maybe they're not as deep as we think. And we look at these silent rivers running deep and we say, well, where's their fire for the Lord? Oh, they got more of a fire than we could ever imagine. We've got to be careful on what we see and what we perceive. First Samuel 16 backs it up, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Sounds good. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named you. So, that sounds simple. Go over, let invite Jesse. Jesse's going to bring his boys. One of his boys is going to be king. Verse 4, So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, You come peaceably. 
And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Elab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What a powerful verse. I don't know what Matthias had, but the Lord wanted to work with it. And it doesn't mean the other guy was not good, not white. It doesn't mean that. But there was something in that heart the Lord wanted to work with. I tell you, when you look across the body of Christ, sometimes as humans we have a tendency, that guy's got to be a good one. I can just tell. What's that the Lord see? There may be something in there that we don't see. So obviously Samuel thought Elab had to be the greatest guy. The Lord said no. Verse 8, So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass by before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. It's almost like Jesse is saying... Well, Samuel says, is there anybody left? And Jesse says, well, there's just David. Have you ever had that just David moment? Oh, man. I tell you, the years I've been a pastor out here, we've had just David moments where all of a sudden the Lord opens the door and it's like, my goodness, that guy, that gal's amazing. They'd be a, a, a great spiritual addition to the church. How did we not see this? And it's that David moment. Verse 12, so he went and brought him in. Now he was ready with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint, for this is the one. The Lord saw. And when the Lord saw it, the Lord said, that's the one. There was something with Matthias. And the Lord said, that's the one. Now back to Acts. Let's go to our last point here. Let's look at how they made the choice. Verse 26. Well, actually, verse 24, they prayed. That's good. Verse 26, they cast lots. Cast lots. What an, what an Old Testament idea. What would happen in the Old Testament on certain decisions? They actually had this bag that would have different colored stones in it, a white stone and a black stone. And if you had a question, uh, the high priest could go before the Lord and pull out the stone. And so, therefore, if you got the right colored stone, that would be the yes or the no. Let's say white meant yes. He would go to the Lord and something simple of, uh, should we attack, attack the Philistines? Stick the hand in the bag, pull out the white stone. Oh, white says yes, let's go attack the Philistine. Next time, pull out the stone black. Black says no, don't. You see, casting lots. Casting lots, the lot fell on Matthias. That's obviously who God wants. Now, you don't see this continued on in the book of Acts. You don't see this being taught or practiced in any of the church epistles. Why? Because when we have a decision now, we simply just pray and say, Lord, reveal to us what you want us to do. Now, the problem is this. Some of you, and myself included, Every now and then it say, yeah, but that Old Testament way. How much easier was that? Can you imagine just carrying around a bag with a black stone and a white stone everywhere you go? Somebody offers you a job. Let me check. Lord, you want me to take the job? And you just pull it out. White stone, I'm supposed to take it. Oh, black stone, God said no. That's what they did. Can you imagine big life choices simplified to a bag with stones? Now, some of us stop and say, doesn't that sound relieving? Because right now you're in the middle of a big decision and you're praying and you're fasting and you're seeking and you're not getting an answer. And right now you're like, can I just stick my hand in a bag, please? Problem is, there's utterly no relationship with God with those decision making. Your relationship with is a bag and two stones. 
That's not a relationship. Right now, you have a relationship with the Lord. You ask Him, He answers. And you get to communicate with the Creator of the universe. Now, why do we not like that? Because in our McDonald's fast food society, it's easier to pull a stone out of a bag. When really the Lord cultivates a deeper relationship with us by spending time in prayer and seeking Him on these answers. Trust me, there's been time in my walk with the Lord where I just wish I had the bag. But I tell you, it's during those dark times and difficult times, you find yourself growing deeper in the Lord by spending time with Him in prayer. How do you know He's answering, though? We're running out of time, so we're not going to go to the passage. I'm just going to tell you, and you can write it down. It's John 10, and specifically John 10, verse 4. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. My sheep know my voice. See, the longer you walk with the Lord, the easier it is for you to hear and know the voice of the Lord and what He wants you to do. I'm not claiming some deep spiritual knowledge or guidance. I don't mean it that way at all. But I've walked with the Lord long enough, and if I keep my ears open, I know when He's asking me to contact somebody. I know when He says, call them. I know when He says, write a card. I know when He says, be concerned about this person. It's not because I'm deep. It's because I've walked with Him, and I hear His voice, and I know His voice. And I encourage you, the longer you walk with the Lord and the deeper you walk with the Lord, you'll know His voice. If we would take everybody in the church here and we put them all in one room, there'd be hundreds of people. I'm telling you right now, I could pick out my son's dad when they said dad. Why? Because I know their voice. I could pick out my kids' cry. I'm out here at church and there's somebody crying every single service out here. Every now and then I stop and I say, hold on, I just need to listen. Okay, not my kid. We can move on. You can tell by their cry. If you've been married long enough, you can tell your wife or husband's cough or sneeze or anything. You know them. You know their voice because you know them. You've been around them. Same thing with the Lord. When you know the Lord and walked with the Lord and been around the Lord, it's easier to hear his voice. It's just a fact. And I encourage you to build that deep relationship with them. And once again, please don't sit here and say, well, I'm praying and I'm not hearing an answer. Obviously, I don't know the Lord deeply. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's one of the ways he communicates is through prayer. There's really four ways he communicates. If you're taking notes, just write them down. The first one we talked about is prayer. You ask, he answers. Or he commands, you listen. Prayer. The next one is fellowship. There's been times where I've been praying about something, saying, Lord, please answer. And then just a casual conversation at church with other believers, somebody just says something, and immediately I know that was for me. That the Lord chose to answer my prayer through a random comment or something that somebody said. I don't know how many times people come to me with a Bible question. And as they're asking me the question, I'm thinking, yeah, you think you're asking for you, but really that's what I needed to hear. Fellowship. Number two, or number three, I should say, worship. When you come with an open heart for worship, there was a time a, a few weeks ago where there was a worship song. And it doesn't matter If you like the way the song is, or the words, or anything, it's if you come with an open heart, the Lord can speak through worship. And there was a song a few weeks ago where there was a line in that song that's exactly what I needed to hear. And that answered something that I've been seeking the Lord on. He spoke through worship. The Lord can also speak through His Word, being in the Word. And as you're in the Word, He can answer through devotions and and Bible study, etc. There may have been a passage today that you said, that's what I needed to hear. Because He spoke through the Word. So when somebody says, hey, Pastor James, I want to get together with you, or can we talk? I usually say, hey, call me, text me, email me. There's three different options there. Get a hold of me somehow. 
Isn't it nice to know with the Lord, same thing. Lord, I need an answer from you. Through prayer, through fellowship, through worship, through the word, answer. And the more of these elements that you incorporate into your life deeply, prayer, fellowship, worship, and the word, the more opportunity you have for the Lord to answer you. It's easier for you to know and hear his voice because you're opening up all these avenues of communication. And the Lord can speak through any one of them there. So listen, as a Christian, I struggle with, Lord, are you calling me to do this? But you know what? John 10 says that as his sheep, I can know and hear my shepherd's voice. And the more time I spend with my shepherd, the more I know and hear them. And I can understand through prayer, through worship, through the word, through fellowship, we can do that. Mario, if we come forward here for the final song. I want to share with you one quick story. 